Good morning, everybody. So the, the, the seed of what I'd like to talk about today comes from one line of Dogen from uh, a piece of his called uh, Bendoa, or sometimes it's translated as the wholehearted way or in another translation, on, on the endeavor of the way. So on the, on the practice of the way. And this was uh, one line that Yoko and I uh, had, uh, were talking about on Monday. And at the moment that we were talking about it and Yoko was sharing some of the the meanings of the characters that were involved in this line and all these kind of openings started happening and I got, I kind of got excited about this line. And then I kind of, as the week wore on and the kind of, I got inundated by the, by the news and my own uh, my own karmic habit patterns um, I, f I forgot that line or it receded in the in the uh, in the flooding of everything else and then as my talk approached I thought okay I need to uh, I, I want to talk about something and I went back to that line and the line seemed when I first, when I read it again, in the face of everything that had happened, uh, you know, my own karmic reactions, the uh, the tumult of of current events, the, that line seemed very. Uh, I don't know. It it felt very small. It's like there's no that line's not going to be able to meet what I need to talk about. Um, but yesterday I revisited the line and spent some time with it and let it unfold and speak to me some more. And I, it started to reveal more depth and actually started speaking to my situation, um, as I was experiencing it. So I'd like to share that with you and, and hopefully it also proves helpful. So I'll, I'll read the line in the translation that Yoko and I were working from. And some of you may recognize this uh, from a chant that we do sometimes called the self-receiving and self-employing samadhi, which is... Uh, which is part of this piece. And this is the two sentences. All Buddhas continuously abide in this Dharma and do not leave traces of consciousness about where they are. Sentient beings, as opposed to Buddhas here, sentient beings continuously 
move move about in this dharma, but where they are is not clear in their consciousness. So in both cases, we have uh, beings that are continuously doing something. On one side, you have Buddhas, Buddhas which are continuously abiding in the Dharma. And then on the, other, on the other hand, sentient beings continuously move about. And uh, Yoko was telling me that the, the character that gets translated as move about also has the sense of, you know, wandering aimlessly. In another translation by Uchiyama Roshi, this was uh, Tanahashi, the first one was Tanahashi's translation. This is by uh, Uchiyama Roshi. Buddhas constantly dwell in and maintain this dharma, yet no trace of conceptualization remains. Living beings constantly function in and use this dharma, yet it does not appear in their perception. And I think in this case, perception, or just by does not appear in their perception means they're just not aware of uh, what they're doing. These, they're moving about in the same dharma, but not mindfully. So these things are just kind of running on autopilot for living beings. Buddhas are constantly dwelling in and maintaining the Dharma, yet no trace of conceptualization remains. And so I just wanted to talk a minute about the, these, this juxtaposition that's being set up in, the, in this short paragraph. It's a juxtaposition that on the surface seems very close. Both Buddhas and both Buddhas and sentient beings are interacting and moving about in this Dharma. In one case, the Buddhas are doing it we could say wholeheartedly without adding anything extra, without adding a trace of conceptualization. And this, and this leaving no trace is what allows them to actually abide and dwell in the Dharma. The sentient beings are moving about wandering aimlessly Kind of not noticing what they're doing. And presumably 
leaving sticky traces of conceptualization here and there. And Yoko, we were looking at the first line and Yoko's here. I may get Yoko to uh, back me up or uh, add something. Um, but this dwelling and abiding that's happening in the, with the Buddhas is happening wherever they go. So it's not like this abeli, this abiding and the dwelling doesn't have a location. Uh, the character that is translated as wherever they are means something like direction face. So in whatever way Buddhas are directing their attention, their abiding and dwelling happens there. So this abiding and dwelling doesn't have a fixed location. It moves along with the direction of their activity. I'm reminded of that line from the, I think it's the Gensho Koan, you know, when their field is small, when their activity is small, their field is small. When their activity is large, their field is large. So this dwelling, this abiding, is it's dynamic. And I'd like to actually connect this idea of dynamic dwelling and abiding with the idea of refuge. That when we go, when we go for refuge, we're not going to a location. Refuge is an orientation of our activity. And it goes along with in this case, leaving no trace of conceptualization. Or we could say engaging in something, in the language that we often use, engaging in something wholeheartedly. I kind of want to reclaim the phrase, leaving no trace. So I know when, when we were in, you know, when we were practicing in Brooklyn, we often used that, that expression to mean something like clean up after yourselves, you know, wash your dishes. And it, it does mean that, but I think in its, in the full depth of the meaning of that phrase, it's about entering into something completely. And... 
and noticing when we're overlaying an idea or some kind of concept onto an activity that's already complete in itself. There's a kind of stickiness. That's also kind of language that we use sometimes to talk about uh, the stickiness of our ideas about something versus meaning something completely. Are we sweeping the floor or are we sleeping the floor and also telling a story, narrating the sweeping of the floor as we go along? And there's something about softening around that storytelling, around that conceptual, conceptualization that allows us to dwell and abide wherever we are. We actually enter into, into a new relationship with the world, with objects. In the case of a broom, I think we enter into a new relationship with objects and also with time. When we're able to take a backward step and notice the, prolifer the proliferation of conceptualization and storytelling, the the residue of all these separations that we impute on the world. So how does this, how does this help now? <laughs> this was my koan as I was preparing for this talk. How does this encouragement actually support us, give us a clue how to practice in this scary historical moment? Or in any scary historical moment? What I'm, what I'm noticing, when I feel into the encouragement of that line, the encouragement of this juxtaposition, there's this encouragement in plain English, to pay attention to what we're doing. To be mindful. And I've been thinking in terms of all the little 
ways that we can ritualize our activity at home, whether it's sitting zazen in the morning or mindfully brushing our teeth or paying attention as we get dressed. All these little moments are opportunities to abide and dwell in the details of this activity. And I think the challenge for me, I'll speak personally, the challenge for me is at this moment, uh, when the world seems so violent and the level of uncertainty politically is just so viscerally there. When I met with the, uh, when I start spinning out into the implications of that, it's very easy for me just to fall into the comfort and the supposed ease of just my habitual reactions. Much easier just to start binge watching something on Netflix. Kosin and Reverend Angel were in a conversation earlier this week and Reverend Angel was talking about the, the kind of the momentum and the velocity of our habitual tendencies. Yeah. I'm now 52, so I, I've had habitual tendencies that have been building up speed all this time. And when I'm met with a scary and fraught world, it's so the, the familiarity and the ease with which, which I can fall back into that habitual reaction is extremely compelling. It's right there, I don't have to do anything, boom. And then I'm just kind of propelled. It's like I'm strapped to the front of a train and it's just pushing me along. I think it's very easy to conflate the, the familiarity and comfort of our pigeon reactions with refuge. Because they've done they've done so much for us for so long. And then I return to this line from Dogen. 
And actually, this was, you know, yesterday morning. I, I actually got up and I brushed my teeth. A very simple activity. But I could, I was noticing myself becoming alive with it. Noticing my hand holding the brush, the feeling of the brush on my teeth, the senses came alive in the activity of brushing, brushing the teeth. And I noticed the first thing I noticed was kind of like, oh, I'm, <laughs> I kind of had this moment of like a self-congratulation. I was like, I'm being mindful brushing my teeth. It's actually happy. Um, there was actually, you know, an energy that came along with that, with this being present with the brushing of the teeth. There was, all of a sudden there was an energy that was available, that was not there when I was in bed looking at my computer. I know Tia always used to talk about uh, one of her, uh, you know, antidotes for being sleepy and kind of slothful was to start paying attention to fine details. I think that's one of, one of the things that ritual kind of jump starts in us is we have to be with something and pay attention to a detail. Whether it's our breath, whether it's the body, whether it's the arising, passing away of a thought When we can meet, when we can meet these things intimately, there's an energy that comes up. Kosen talked a little bit about this in his, in his class last night, talking about how when we focus on something, we're kind of gathering, I think he said something like gathering our kind of fractured attention and bringing it onto an activity. And there's something about collecting our attention and directing it on something that arouses energy. And I'm starting to actually feel it as not arousing energy, it's opening up, it's opening up a relationship to an energy of dynamic life that's already there. We're just, because we're directing our attention to it, 
it becomes available to us. And the thing I noticed about this one little moment of realization of brushing the teeth was that it encouraged me to bring that dwelling and abiding into other things. So there was like a cumulative effect of this one moment of gathered attention in the inactivity. And this energy had along with it an encouragement to keep going with it. Of course, my freight train of conditioning is still there, but there was this this moment of refuge that kind of lit up. Seven factors of awakening, what are called, which are, um, which I think in the, in, as part of this process, I started to experience uh, a little bit of these cumulative factors of awakening, which are mindfulness. And they kind of, these ones really do, in my experience, kind of build on each other. So the factor of mindfulness, second one is usually translated as investigation of the dharmas. So we can, we're mindful of something, we start to see it's arising and passing away. And the third factor is energy. And this is absolutely what I was feeling when I, when I had this moment of being present with brushing my teeth. There was energy available. that was not just, it wasn't, it wasn't like a caffeinated energy. It was an energy that encouraged me to stay with this, to bring it into other areas. The fourth factor is joy. And Kosin again has been talking about this joy as not joy that's dependent on circumstance. But I think in this case, joy that's dependent on being party to this energy that's already there in our present experience. Again, Reverend Angel and Kosen touched at the very end of their talk about the need for this joy as something that supports our capacity and resilience to keep going with this work in the midst of the tumult, the uncertainty, the groundlessness of the world. Finally, next, after joy, calm or ease. 
the more we're able to expand this capacity, greater capacity to settle. And then the six factor concentration. Again, our ability to concentrate is heightened, I guess. And the seventh factor, equanimity. You know, this capacity to be with in a settled way, everything that arises. Thich Nhat Hanh translates equanimity as letting go. So I guess you could say equanimity, the ability to be with the arising world without grasping. So that has a quality of, of letting go. So these acts of, we could just say mindfulness. It's funny, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh's translation of the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, the title that he gave it is Transformation and Healing. and. I remember the first time I encountered the title, I was kind of confused. Shouldn't it be called the Four Foundations of Mindfulness? And I remember having a kind of cynical reaction to the title, like he's just, this is just so he can sell books or something. But when I read it now, I really feel the quality of or I guess a trust in these practices that they're conducive to healing and wholeness. And one thing, again, just to go back on a, on a kind of more personal level, my experience of um, this, this energy, another aspect of it for me has a quality of being supported. As some of you may know, one of my core, core stories is um, you know, nobody's helping me. I have to do everything myself. This was a, a strategic maneuver that I adopted very early on in my life. And I've, and this has been, it's one of the, it's probably the caboose of that freight train that's been propelling me along all this time. And Part of the experience of this energy that arises in these uh, moments of mindfulness is an actual energy of 
being supported. And sometimes it even manifests as being supported by Sangha. I'll, there's this moment of relaxation and opening. And I realize that there are, there are others with me. There are other beings here with me. And I'm not doing this alone. So there really is a quality of support that comes up with this, uh, this energy that follows from our intimate relationship with our activity. And so that's been, again, I think something that's uh, really been uh, deepening my, my faith and trust in these practices. Um, so I'm going to end in a few moments. So there's time for questions or comments, but I would like to end with uh, maybe a, a few poems from this book, which is uh, you know poems of the. Uh, first Buddhist nuns, and I'm really falling in love with these translations. And I was flipping through it, and I, I noticed that a lot of these uh, poems contain a similar juxtaposition between wandering aimlessly, a lot of them talk about wandering in circles, and being still. And so I wanted to read three of them. The first one is by Sumana, whose name trans translates as Flowering Jasmine. Walk through the mind all day and all night. When you find each thought ending right where it began, here your circling ends. And I think it really, that this poem really talks about how close this practice is. That it's not about eradicating thought, eradicating conceptualization. but just finding where each thought ends and where it begins, being there for that. Okay, I'm actually just gonna read one more. I don't wanna do too many poems. I think just one more is enough. I really love this one. This is by uh, Genta, whose name translates as conqueror. Conqueror. I was forever getting lost until one day the Buddha told me, to walk this path, you will need seven friends. Mindfulness, curiosity, courage, joy, 
calm, stillness, and perspective. The seven factors of awakening there. For many years, these friends and I have traveled together, sometimes wandering in circles, sometimes taking the long way round. There were, the, there were days when I thought I couldn't go on. There were days when I thought I was finally beaten. It's scary to give all of yourself to just one thing. What if you don't make it? Oh, my heart. You don't have to go it alone. Train yourself to train just a little more gently. The last stanza again. Train yourself to train just a little more gently. Um, which I think this poem is just beautiful um, and a great encouragement. And I love the translation of the seven factors of awakening. Mindfulness, curiosity, a little different than investigation, curiosity. And instead of energy, courage. Which really gets to this quality of an energy that's encouraging to stay with it. Joy, calm, stillness. And I love the translation of upeka, of equanimity here as perspective, which I think is a very kind of practical way of talking about equanimity. Kind of giving us a wider perspective of everything that's coming up. And I think sometimes equanimity can feel like it's a shutting down or a numbing but this is, there's still some discernment that's alive in there with perspective. So I really love this poem. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much everybody. Wonderful to see you all. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.